All right, so this is Michelle Rowe. Uh, I'm from the University of Minnesota, and I'm here uh, with some excellent colleagues to discuss the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology uh, meeting. Uh, we're here in Baltimore, and it's April 28th, and this is the second day of our meeting, and we had a lot of exciting science happening today. Um, so I would just want to introduce who is here with us today. Um, so if we can just go around the room and introduce yourself and where you're from. I'm Lisa Gay Woodford from Children's National in Washington. And Aaron Horton from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm Don Batiski, Children's Healthcare Atlanta and Emory University. Great, so thanks for joining us today. Um, so as with all scientific meetings, we started early this morning with an 8 o'clock session on polycystic kidney disease. Um, so Aram, if you want to tell us a little bit about that session and, and uh, what did you learn there today? So we had a great session. Uh, we had a lovely intro introduction by Dr. Lisa Gay Woodford, um, giving an overview of AR and ADPKD, uh, followed by a uh, talk by Dr. Melissa Kadnapa Hornshai from Denver. Uh, about ABPKD, and then Dr. Dell from Cleveland about ARPKD, um, and then a GI colleague uh, from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia talking about liver disease. Um, I think the, uh, the session was, uh, gave a really great overview both of the clinical aspects of care of patients with ARPKD and ADPKD, um, and particularly illustrated some of the challenges we face in, uh, in doing research in these diseases, both uh, research in rare disease in general, um, and then some of the specific challenges related to uh, uh, having good biomarkers to follow in the context of clinical trials um, and how that really affects our ability to move forward with uh, clinical trials in these diseases. Um, so what are you looking forward to in uh, uh, clinical research in ARPKD and ADPKD? So I think there are a huge number of questions that need to be answered. Um, I think uh, first and foremost, I think to really get to that next step, which is the uh, being able to do clinical trials, we need to um, have good biomarkers, so that's certainly an area that I focus on with my work and Dr. Dell focuses on with her work. Um, I think uh, getting good numbers of patients enrolled in clinical trials, so I was really excited by some of the, the follow-up session this afternoon about clinical trials and moving those forward, and I think there's some really great infrastructures um, out there to be able to, uh, to, to leverage to be able to do research in rare diseases. Um, and so I think that's really the next step to, um, to really being able to move research forward in these diseases. Great, thanks. Um, so Lisa, tell us a little bit about your overview of, the, of PKD. You really gave a great um, just description of uh, ADPKD and ARPKD and all of the other um, combined cystic diseases. And um, where do you think the field is headed? So um, I think that, that one of the things that's important in ADPKD is we know an awful lot about the clinical manifestations, about the heterogeneity of the affected population, but we know that primarily in adults. There are very small studies in children with disease tends to typically manifest in the kidneys, so that's squarely in our wheelhouse. Um, and yet, um, when we think about everything from hypertension to progression, progressive loss of kidney function to, um, uh, to other issues um, like stone disease, it, it is very small numbers of patients upon which we design our care plan, we think about prognostic indicators. Um, and so just to echo something that Aram said, I think it's very important that we enroll patients um, in, in databases and have well-characterized cohorts um, so that we can really ask questions about the natural history of the disease in, um, in a lot of, of, of sort of different domains. Um, and that we have a cohort then who is familiar with the idea of research and therefore ready to make that next step into clinical trials. That's even more true for ARPKD, 
where we largely cite evidence from the Journal of Anecdotal Medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a problem because, you know, sometimes we're really wrong. The perfect example is how clear many groups, including my own, were about the fact that two truncating mutations portends a very poor perinatal outcome. Um, it's nuanced. It's much more complicated than that. And you only really reveal the truth when you look at large numbers of patients. I think I would pick up on not only this meeting and some of the things that were talked about this afternoon, but the recent Midwest Pediatric Nephrology Consortium, now the Pediatric Nephrology Research Consortium, um, that, that we have a community that is very collegial and very interested in combining forces so that we have the opportunity to make the whole more than the sum of the parts, and that's going to advance our knowledge in both ADPKD and ARPKD and the other renal cystic diseases that plague children. Thanks. One of the things that I found um, very interesting that Catherine Dell mentioned um, during her talk was that there are probably over 10 clinical trials ongoing in autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, but only one really small phase one study in ARPKD. Um, Lisa, what do you think we can do to bring more treatments to that population? It's a, it's a much more rare, rare disease population. So I think that, you know, if we think about how there was, what was the tipping point for ADPKD for clinical trials, starting with the V2 receptor antagonists, progressing to the rapalogs, thinking about um, uh, the uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, et cetera, et cetera, it's that we had a very good sense of how to measure disease progress. So we knew when, when we could bend the curve. We don't have those markers in ARPKD. And I think that, that you know, I would just want to punctuate Aram's point and the wonderful work that she and Catherine are doing, trying to find imaging markers. What I would love to see is that in ARPKD that we could put together a composite scoring system, something similar to what the Mayo has done with the, uh, the Irazabal score, that we take clinical features, the age of the patient, some genetic information, some imaging information, and put that together to say, this is the cohort of children that are going to progress rapidly, this may be a target for X, Y, or Z agent. This is the cohort of children that may progress more slowly, optimizing standard of care, again, from large cohorts of patients, knowing what we should do for blood pressure targets, um, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that, that will be the, the sort of the exciting tipping point for ARPKD when we have those markers. Well, I would love, love to see that happen, and I'm sure you will help lead the way. Um, the next session that we had today was a hypertension workshop um, that was uh, aimed at general uh, pediatricians in how to um, apply the new uh, AAP guidelines to their practice. And Don, can you tell us a little bit about that workshop and, and how that went today? Sure. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, first, I'd like to comment to some of my co-presenters here. I'm sorry I missed that, that session. Um, I did have the benefit of getting to hear Lisa talk at our institution recently as a visiting professor, uh, so I know that had to be a great talk. Um, but shifting gears, um, it's interesting, we're coming upon the two-year anniversary of the publication of the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline on Hypertension, and what I find, and as I anecdotally talk to, to colleagues, uh, we, we haven't seen full implementation of these guidelines um, by primary care doctors. Uh, so in, in a sense, this workshop today was geared as outreach, if you will, uh, to those who are often on the front lines seeing these patients. And uh, in, in a essence, the workshop was a bit of a speed dating exercise. Uh, we ended up uh, having probably 60 participants come in, and we had nine stations, if you will, uh, each station manned by an expert 
from, from our field. Um, mostly pediatric nephrologists, but we had some crosstalk with some cardiologists as well. And each uh, expert uh, was given um, an area of the guidelines to sort of focus on. And we had the topics ranging from actual blood pressure measurement to ambulatory blood pressure monitoring on out to uh, cardiac non-invasive uh, imaging beyond echo. Uh, we had folks talking about sports participation and, and blood pressure, ADHD and blood pressure. And uh, it was a very robust conversation. I, I was moderating and essentially every 10 to 12 minutes asked people to rotate and it was nearly impossible to get people to, to move very quickly, which I thought was a, a good sign. Mm -hmm. uh, so everybody uh, went away with some practical tips on even management as we had folks talking about some dietary and, and exercise have, um, opportunities to, to make a difference. And we even had a, a member talking about apps to use to uh, track blood pressure and, and help manage blood pressure. So I, I'd say by, by 10 o'clock as, as our hours wound down, uh, it, it was tough to get people out of the room, which I think was a good thing. Uh, we intend to do some follow-up. Uh, we, we did a session similar to this last year, and I personally sent out surveys to both presenters and participants to get some feedback from them to maybe uh, encourage some crosstalk. And something I intend to add to this year's survey is to try to get a sense uh, as to what the barriers are out there uh, between uh, a guideline that's been out for almost two years and implementation of that guideline because certainly this is uh, a growing problem, no pun intended, when it comes to hypertension among youth. And we, uh, we need to enlist those in the, uh, in, the, in the trenches, if you will, the primary care doctors, uh, to, to help us take care of these kids. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, they're the ones who make the diagnosis and make the referrals, so making sure they have that information. And from the pediatricians that were in the room, do you think that the 2017 um, guidelines are, have been disseminated out to them? Do they, they know about them, know how to implement them? Interestingly, they, they know about it. And uh, uh, one of the colleagues actually came up to me and pointed out to me uh, a, a flow diagram, like a one-page infographic that she and her group had put together and had sort of vetted it with the nephrologist at their institution. And she sent it to me. I haven't had a chance to really look at it. It's been a busy day. But she said, send this out. We're happy to you know, share this information. So it was great to have that kind of interaction between uh, the primary care docs and the subspecialists. Um, on the, you know, I've been on the program planning committee for probably a dozen years now. And having seen how things work behind the scenes, uh, one of the things I was able to do was reach out across the lines into the Ambulatory Pediatric Association to get the word out that this was a workshop being geared toward their membership. Um, this was jointly sponsored between ASPN and IFA, the International Pediatric Hypertension Association. So um, once again, I think it shows the, uh, the value of collaborative networks, the value of working together toward a common goal because a rising tide does raise all, all ships. Sounds like a great session. I'll be sure to go next year. <laughs> um, and I can talk a little bit about the, the session this afternoon. We had a, a really excellent lineup of speakers on promoting clinical trials in pediatric nephrology, um, looking at kind of where we've been and where we're going in the future. 
Um, so this session was kicked off by Deb Gibson, and she gave um, a background of the history of drug development in children, um, and really had some amazing statistics that she shared with us that 30% of clinical trial sites never enroll a patient. So this is a really inefficient process, and we don't, um, we don't do a good job about it. And over 30% of trials are never published. So even trials that we're, that we're performing never get published. So we have a lot of, a lot of room for improvement in that um, standpoint. Um, next, Mona Karana from the FDA gave a review of the regulatory landscape of pediatric drug development and what the FDA is looking for to um, get approval for drugs to use in children. We know that over 50% of the drugs that we're using are not FDA approved. Um, so lots of off-label use going on in, um, in pediatrics. Um, some of the big uh, uh, advances over the past few decades have been the Pediatric Research Equity Act and the Best Pharmaceutical for Children Act. Um, but that only uh, provides companies with the mandate to do the trials. It really doesn't help them perform the trials or find the patients. So um, the next few talks were about how to do that. Um, Ed Connor was here from IACT, which is the Institute for Advanced Clinical Trials, and he had some really innovative ideas about how to perform um, clinical research in these, in these small, unique populations, thinking about things like master protocols that may use um, common uh, control arms um, and allow patients to enter a trial really at whatever point they are in their, um, in their disease process. Um, other things like using Bayesian, uh, Bayesian design, um, which I've been, it's been explained to me probably 10 times and I still have a hard time understanding what exactly that means. Um, but I think there's a lot of ways that pediatric nephrology can learn from um, these really smart trialists uh, to help move our drugs along. Uh, next up was Howard Trackman from NYU and he talked about um, his partnerships with industry and how to um, create partnerships with industry to allow success. And he had a great story of how Martin Shkreli from Retrofin um, cold called him to discuss performing a trial in, uh, uh, in children with FSGS. So um, be open to opportunities when they, when they fall into your lap. Uh, and then finally, I discussed a program that um, I've been working on with uh, Bill Schnapper and others through the Kidney Health Initiative called the Kidney Patch. And this um, is intended to solve the problem of the kind of the fragmentation of pediatric nephrology clinical research um, landscape. So there are a number of excellent organizations that uh, perform clinical research. There's the Pediatric Nephrology Research Consortium, Napertix, um, Neptune, CureGN, all kinds of resources that are available. Um, but there's nowhere where they're all combined into one um, uh, so industry can find them if they need help performing clinical trials. So Kidney Patch aims to be a, um, an umbrella organization. So if, uh, if a sponsor wants to perform a trial in a certain population, they can come to Kidney Patch. We can look through our list of resources and help match them with um, the res resources that they need to have a successful clinical trial. And it may be um, very early on where they're looking for um, uh, consulting or looking for uh, people to give them disease-specific advice, or it may be more at the implementation stage where they're looking for 30 sites to perform a clinical trial and they want to know where the patients are. Um, so really aiming to be that one-stop shop matchmaking um, organization. Um, and if you look on the, on the KHI website or Google KHI and um, pediatrics, you'll find uh, more information about kidney patch and about how you can get involved with that. Um, the other thing that I found really um, 
amazing today was uh, one of the workshops this morning where Alicia New and John Mayen um, gave uh, their gave uh, talk about their um, journey through in academic medicine, just what was important to them, um, how did they get to where they are, um, and that it was just really insightful to hear really these leaders in pediatric nephrology talk about um, their journey and their ups and downs. Um, and then there was a nice talk about um, resilience and uh, uh, burnout from the chief wellness officer from Johns Hopkins, and she had some really nice insights in, in how to, um, you know, how, how to work around that. Was anyone else able to uh, make it to that session? I, I attended that session. That was You're in the Know, mm -hmm. and uh, that was probably, for me, one of the most remarkable points of, of the day. Uh, that I'll dovetail on that ended up being a nice lunch and I missed the session you were talking about because of that. But uh, John Mann uh, uh, was one of my first mentors in nephrology and I had lunch with him today and I said, you know, people often ask me, why did, why, what made you do pediatric nephrology? I said, well, nothing really made me do pediatric nephrology, but in August 1987, as an intern, you were my attending. And I was so inspired that by the end of that month, I knew I was going to be a pediatric nephrologist. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and he's still a great teacher and mm -hmm. still inspiring people to be pediatric nephrologists. Um, and I think as we're thinking about all of the workforce issues that our, um, that our specialty has, we all need to, need to be those mentors. All right, well, thank you to everybody for joining us this afternoon. And this concludes our podcast for day 